Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. We'll get Don't to some... Don't ask. Well, no, I'm not going to. Don't we'll, ask. We'll get to some football later with our interview with Reggie Brown. Uh, uh-huh. And we'll get to some basketball in just a minute. Uh, talking yeah, to Jordan. Just, just don't just don't ask about a Thursday night football game that was a two and seventeen versus a one and seven. Uh, no, I don't. I don't just even don't. care. I, I am much more interested <laughs> in which interested you more Wednesday night: the Sixers beating Boston or the reaction the of the fans and the Nets to James Harden, Jeff. <laughs> the, the Nets <laughs> and James Harden, as Nets fans cleverly decided to chant, not James Harden, but Daryl Morey. I, I saw something that said that the Sixers won the James Harden trade twice. <laughs> and, and I'm sure Daryl Morey was somewhere with a big grin on his face. But I got I do have to say, because I, I have been a doubter since since the James Harden trade and in every move since. And I got to tell you, the early returns are much like I said last week, that maybe you don't need a big three. Maybe you need a big two with a whole bunch of really good role players. They moved to and six, right now. They have it. They moved to six and one with their win over the Celtics the other night. They've won six in a row, swept the five game homestand. Uh, some things outside of the scoring. They held Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown to a combined 27 points on 10 to 27 shooting. They yeah. out rebounded the Celtics 56 to 42 uh, in the paint. They outscored them 56 to 40. So it's these little things. And, I, I joked with you. I didn't know that players could cut and move in an offense. I thought they had to just kind of stand in position and wait for somebody to to go one on one. It's it's great to see the movement that this team has out on the court. It's also great to see uh, the coaching job that Nick Nurse has done early in the season. He's not only had to get them ready in a in a horrible condition with James Harden on the team, but he's very quickly found a way to integrate the guys that have joined the team as James Harden has left, and he's. Also very open and saying, I don't know yet. I may have made some mistakes. That's what the beginning of the season is for, is figuring those things out. You may have Ubre going to the bench and being the hot guy off of the bench and have Batum going into the starting lineup in a few weeks. I find the whole thing refreshing. Uh, I was dreading the season. I didn't want to talk about contracts. I told you all along, I wanted to be excited to see what Nick Nurse and these players could do. Now I don't have to worry about James Harden. I get to see it. It's it's fun what I'm seeing early. And and, la- and last word before we talk about Jumpman. Um, really, Furcon's getting uh, minutes before a whole bunch of other guys. Yeah, yes, yeah. Fur- <laughs> Furcon coming off the bench. We'll leave it there. We'll get to our Michael Jordan segment now. Let's take a few minutes and talk with sports historian, Georgia Tech professor, and author of the book Jumpman: The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan, Johnny Smith. Johnny, congrats on the book, and thanks for giving us some time to talk about it. Oh, thanks so much. Glad to be here. All right. So so this book isn't really a biography. It's it's kind of about the the making and the meaning of of Michael Jordan. You're, you're somebody who's written about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, somebody who's written about Muhammad Ali. Why did you decide to tell this version of Michael Jordan's story now? Yeah, great question. So um, I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in the 1980s and 1990s. Major Michael Jordan fan, fan of Chicago Bulls. You know, I was one of those kids who wanted to be like Mike. Um, and so his his career in many ways shaped my youth, like a lot of kids growing up in the Chicagoland area. Oh, okay, great. I'm not from and, Chicagoland, but he shaped my youth. 
Yeah, the, sure. Except the, except for the part where had Jason jumps. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't have that type of influence on me. But I mean, I remember going to the Jordan Barkley games at the Spectrum when they battled in the playoffs in '90. And I mean, that that's a memory that I have with my dad. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, you know, for me, he he's there's always he's always been a presence in my life. Well, fast forward, I became an academic historian, and as you said, I've I've written about several sports icons, many of them black athletes like Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and and others. And for me as a historian, I've always been interested in how these famous black sports figures have shaped the uh, black freedom struggle. You know, how did race change the way that they saw their role in relation, not just to sports, but to American culture? So as someone who grew up with uh, Jordan being this great presence in my life, I thought, you know, if you follow um, the works of a lot of journalists who've written about Jordan or even you watch The Last Dance, race is not really at the forefront of the conversation. So I wanted to better understand how race shaped the way that Jordan saw himself, how he presented himself in the public as an endorser for Nike and McDonald's and Chevrolet and Coca-Cola and, and these other companies, but also how race in the 1980s and 1990s shaped the way that we as the public uh, white Americans, black Americans, Americans of all different races and ethnicities saw Jordan. And I think there's a pivotal moment. The book follows this period between 1990 and 1991. And I think it's a crucial period in his life and career for two reasons. Number one, of course, that's the season the Bulls pursue their first championship. Jordan and the Bulls, they, they knock out Magic Johnson and the Lakers in the NBA Finals. It's the most watched NBA Finals in history up until that time. More than 70 countries are tuned in in this satellite age. Hundreds of millions of people around the world are watching Jordan. And it's expanding the audience for MJ and for the NBA. And there's going to be consequences for him that I can talk about later. The other thing that's happening in 1991 after those finals is Gatorade launches the Be Like Mike Gatorade campaign. And if you watch that commercial closely, I think there's two crucial storylines that are emerging. You see Jordan surrounded by kids, kids like us, you know, white kids, black kids, boys and girls. And the commercial is positioning basketball as America's game, as the democratic sport that is inclusive, that it brings all kinds of kids from backgrounds onto the court. And it's Jordan who brings them there. Jordan is positioned as this unifying force, the racial unifier. And in studying Jordan's career, particularly in this period, what I came to see is that many Americans saw him as this great American hero who supposedly transcended race. But what I argue in the book is that this is part of the Jordan mythology. This young man who grows up in the South, who is confronted with racism, um, is harassed by you know white kids who hurl the N-word at him, could never truly transcend race. In fact, it's just the opposite. His experiences that he encounters in the South shaped the way that he saw sports. He thought that sports was going to be the ticket to get out of the South, to get out of Wilmington in the late 1970s. He internalized these messages and thought that, well, sports is this one space where I can um, I won't be denied, you know, that kids can't tell me that I'm less than or that I'm inferior because of the color of my skin. And so I want to explore that story, which is largely missing, I think, from the narratives that you see in The Last Dance. So 
let's take a step back to 1984. You talk about in your book, 1984 and the Olympics and how that brought Michael Jordan into our, our vision. Can you talk about how important the 1984 Olympics were to Michael Jordan and the Michael Jordan that we later come to know? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the 84 Olympics were hosted here in the United States in Los Angeles and it was celebrated as this great patriotic moment. Remember, this is the Cold War. It's the rivalry between the U.S. and the Soviets who refused to participate in the 84 Summer Games. And Jordan appears on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He is the face of Team USA. And it's his, his story that is seen as an American story. You know, he is the grandson of sharecroppers. He comes from this middle class Southern Christian family. And so I think that that imagery that is produced, that that's the moment when he starts to be described by sports writers as an American hero. And I think that's interesting because he's not described as a black American hero. He's being described as an American hero. And this is an age in which um, political pundits, particularly more conservative Americans in the age of Reagan, they emphasize this idea of colorblindness, that race should not matter anymore. And even Jordan himself, as I, I write in the first chapter of the book, he embraces this idea. He tells reporters time and time again, you know, I don't want people to think of Michael Jordan as a black man. I want them to see him as a person. And he would say things like, you know, I don't see you for your color. You know, I see you as a person. Now, however well-intentioned colorblindness may be, it is a problematic concept in the sense that the denial of race makes it a lot easier to deny racism. The denial of race makes it a lot easier for Jordan not to talk about race and not to remind people that he has had these experiences with racism that shape the way that he presents himself to the public. But of course, embracing colorblindness, that's part of David Stern's uh, vision as well for the NBA, because if you remember... In the, in, from the late 70s to the early 1980s, critics would say that the league was, quote unquote, too black and the black players were selfish and they were greedy in this age of free agency and that there were these reports that they were using cocaine on just about every roster. You know, Jordan tells the famous story that when he was a rookie in 1984, the team goes to an exhibition game in Peoria, Illinois. And he's looking for his teammates in the in the hotel and he knocks on the door and the door opens and he sees the white lines on a table and he, you know, sprints out of there because he doesn't want to get caught up in that scene. Well, a lot of folks, when he told that story in the last dance, they thought, oh, this is the first time he's telling the story. It's not true. In the late 80s, he told the story as part of the Just Say No campaign that was organized by the Reagan uh, administration. And it was important because that was where Jordan is saying that I'm not like them, you know, and this is my point that racial transcendence is less about who you are than who you are not. Right. He's positioning himself to be someone who is safe and non-threatening. And therefore, that makes him someone who is uh, who could be a role model, someone that you could look up to, regardless if you're black or white, because he was wholesome and he was a man of character. And those values mattered, particularly in the 1980s as the NBA is trying to rehabilitate its image. 
I found it interesting that um, you noted that Jordan didn't differentiate. Like he didn't want to focus on communities. It was just everybody should say no, not the black community should say no. And that fit into this image that they were trying to sell. And you, you go into the role of David Falk doing that. He thought Jordan gained unbelievable exposure, but some of the stats were amazing. I think you had 5% of the league's 280 players were in national or TV print ads at the time. And the general feeling was they weren't marketable. Can you talk about Falk's approach where, where Nike was sort of the linchpin for that and pushing for the individual personality and the shoe line, which was different than the way that black athletes had been marketed previously? Yeah, the Nike deal is is crucial. And you won't learn about this story in the motion picture air <laughs> um, where we don't even see Michael's face. But um, David Falk, I think, was pretty sharp in understanding that he needed to, to sign a deal with Michael that was authentic. He always talked about authenticity, that it made the most sense for Jordan first to sign with a shoe manufacturer for a basketball shoe because he was a basketball player. He's going to be selling basketball shoes. Same thing that he signs a deal with. I think it was Wilson was his basketball, the company that signed Jordan. Um, authenticity, that's the key. Now, when Falk is trying to land this deal, keep in mind that in the sneaker endorsement business, Converse really has the biggest stars under contract. Magic Johnson, Julius Irving, Larry Bird, Isaiah Thomas. Um, but they're not really highlighting them in individual campaigns. They all wear the same shoe, just in different colorways. So there was not this um, effort to focus on a singular athlete. But Phil Knight looks at the numbers and what he's paying all sorts of NBA players just to wear Nike shoes. No campaigns around, around these guys. And he thinks, there's no return for me. Why am I paying dozens of NBA players to wear Nike shoes. It's not helping us with sales. Nike is struggling financially. So um, there's a meeting of, of minds at Nike to build a campaign around a single individual. And, and the future of sports is going to be all about the, the cult of personality, building a movement around heroes. And I think that's what's really interesting about this period in the mid 80s, because Nike and Phil Knight and David Stern in the NBA, they have the same vision for marketing. They want to build their brands around individual heroes, creating heroes. And one of the things I tell my students about heroes, or cultural heroes, they serve a, a social function or a, a social purpose. And that is their models to be emulated. And I think this is why our conversation around race is so important in MJ. It's that, you know, he becomes the template that if you want to land these endorsement deals, you can't be seen as militant. You can't be seen as outspoken. Um, if you want to be a crossover star uh, in the world of sports and entertainment, like an Eddie Murphy or a Whitney Houston or Bill Cosby during this era, well, you have to distance yourself then from these conversations. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that I mentioned in the book, there's very few black sports agents. There was a perception that black agents did not have access to corporate America. They couldn't land these deals. But David Falk was able to make this deal with Nike. Of course, it becomes an unprecedented deal. And then he's able to build on that. And he makes this case that uh, to McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Chevrolet, that you, you three companies, you're going to benefit from Nike because Nike's going to put Michael Jordan 
on television. He's going to be seen all across America and you can draft off of that visibility. And so that enhances Jordan's um, marketability for those other companies who didn't have to take as much risk since Nike was already carrying so much risk. But of course, in the end, it pays off for all of those companies. And for, for Falk, really what he likes about Coca-Cola and McDonald's in particular and Nike, they're all companies that are exporting products overseas. And that's also something that's really important in understanding the Jordan phenomenon is that the NBA and those companies, they're all becoming international. In the satellite age um, and in, in the cable age, they're going to be reaching more and more viewers from the late 80s into the early 90s. You know, one of the characters that was around Michael Jordan in, in during his career is Jerry Krause. And you talked about the commonality that they found with each other, namely Jerry Krause experiencing anti-Semitism and Michael Jordan experiencing racism. Can you talk about that relationship, which also seems very complex? Yeah. Yeah, boy. You know, the Krause story is fascinating to me. When I was researching his background, you know, I learned that he had grown up in Chicago. Um, he desperately wanted to become a somebody. You know, he goes on to be a scout in both basketball and baseball and eventually becomes general manager of the Bulls, hired by Jerry Reinsdorf at a time when the sports writers in Chicago, I thought, you know, Jerry Krause, he had already been the GM actually once for the Bulls. People forget this. And it was a total disaster. Um, but this is someone who I think was terribly insecure. And I think he was picked on as a kid and he was picked on as an adult. He was always kind of seen by the the, the beat writers as, uh, you know, like the unathletic kid who follows the jocks around the high school. And that kind of reputation followed him even when he's a, a grown adult as the general manager of the Bulls. And, you know, when Krauss would meet with potential draft picks or free agents, black players, he would say, well, I can relate uh, because I've experienced discrimination as a Jewish kid growing up in Chicago which undoubtedly he did, you know, experience anti-Semitism. However, one story that came up was a, a profile written by Rick Tellender in, in Sports Illustrated, where um, Krauss is quoted basically saying that he experienced horrific anti-Semitism in his high school. Well, after some of his former classmates at his high school read this profile, uh, Jewish classmates, they wrote a letter to the editor and said, you know, Jerry Krauss is exaggerating. As fellow Jews in our high school, we had very good um, relationships with other kids. There was not rampant anti-Semitism in our school. And it raises all these questions that I wish, you know, we could ask Jerry Krause if he was with us today. You know, well, why exaggerate? No, no doubt that I'm sure he encountered anti-Semitism at some point. But, you know, where does that come from? And I, I suspect there's some trauma in his youth that never goes away. There's just this void he wants to fill. And he talks about how you know he wants to win a championship for his dad. That's a really big thing for him. He's very connected to his father. So when Jordan comes to the Bulls and crosses the GM, there's the famous story that in 1986, Jordan has the broken foot and he's ready to go. And so he's playing these exhibition games back in Chapel Hill um, with college players and Krauss finds out and he's, you know, pissed. So there's this heated meeting between uh, Krauss and Reinsdorf on one side of the table and Jordan on the other side with David Falk. And at one point, Krauss says to Jordan, you know, you can't do whatever you want. You're Bulls property now. 
And when Jordan hears this, your bull's property now, you belong to us, these white executives. That crossed the line for Jordan, I think. And, and it, it was deeply offensive and insulting. And I try to contextualize that story to remind readers about the history of white executives in sports, you know, exploiting African-American athletes. And that that tension never really goes away, even though we have integration in the 50s and 60s and we have these collective bargaining agreements and, and black players led by Oscar Robertson had secured free agency. There's still a tension there that you work for us. It's not a partnership. But the thing I want to point out about Jordan is that this was someone who was deeply driven to assert his independence. And I think we see that in a lot of ways. He's not going to listen to Jerry Krause. He's going to maintain autonomy over his body. He believes that he's going to control his destiny, and he asserts himself in that moment. And he never forgives Jerry Krause. As we all know, Jordan will, will hang on to slights, real or imagined, forever. And he hangs on to that one. Um, and so I think it's important for readers to understand, again, that there's this underlying racial tension there, I think, between Krauss and Jordan that hasn't been fully acknowledged. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned the time between 90 and 91 and, and the growth with Be Like Mike campaign and the, the finals and dueling with Magic. He also had to deal with some social and political ramifications in that time uh as i ran the cover on the sneaker murders in inner cities um he was asked to endorse in the north carolina senate race can you talk about his struggle in that time period to just keep being looked at as a person as opposed to a black person when it came to these circumstances yeah i think you know for all the um statements about him transcending race we find that in these two stories that you're raising here, that that's not really possible for Michael Jordan. In uh, 1990, even before Sports Illustrated runs this, the cover story, uh, Your Sneakers or Your Life, with you know someone holding a gun and grabbing these Air Jordan sneakers, um, the New York Post, uh, Phil Mushnick, uh, who's a, a columnist, wrote this story about how Spike Lee and Michael Jordan were responsible from marketing uh, in their Nike commercials directly to inner city black kids who couldn't afford these Air Jordan sneakers. And they were to blame for all these supposed muggings and killings over Nike shoes. And it's really a fascinating story to think about on a number of levels, I think. The first question that comes to my mind as a historian is, okay, is this true? Were there all these muggings taking place? You know, okay, what's the evidence for this? So two things I did in, in trying to recreate this moment in doing my research. One is I used several newspaper databases and did comprehensive searches, looking for as many articles as I could to document this supposed epidemic. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find evidence that confirmed what Mushnick was telling his readers. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't any muggings over sneakers in the cities and starter jackets. Undoubtedly, there were cases and they occurred. We know some occurred in the inner city. But the other problem I found is that um, Richard Lapchick, who at that time was the director of the Sports and Society Institute at Northeastern University, he was asked this question in 1990. You know, how many of these so-called sneaker murders have there been? 
And he found between 1983 and 1990, only eight cases where there was a murder linked to a sneaker robbery. And so this gives me pause to think about, okay, well, why the exaggeration? Why the hysteria? Well, I think we have to understand what else is going on in inner cities at that time. There is this growing fear of this um, supposed phenomenon of black-on-black crime. Uh, and that the inner cities are out of control, and there's these black youths who are running these violent gangs. And the latest thing that they want, it's not cars, it's these Air Jordan sneakers that have become these valuable totems of status. And so Jordan gets crossed up in this. He's asked about it. He's unprepared to deal with it. He doesn't know what to say. Um, there's a legitimate case that he hears about where, in fact, in uh, Maryland, a teenager, a black teenager, shot and killed another teenager and took his shoes. And that's the one that's featured in the Sports Illustrated story. But there's this incredible hysteria that takes place. And Jordan, I think, realizes that it's not enough for him just to set examples and be the role model. That's not that's not going to be enough. He's going to have to really think about these issues that are happening in society. But the reality is he doesn't want to deal with them. Later that summer in 1990, Jesse Jackson, who at that time uh, was the head of a, a civil rights group in Chicago, Jordan's hometown, uh, called Operation Push. Well, Jesse Jackson organized a boycott of Nike saying, look, Nike has all these black endorsers like Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, but they don't have many black executives. They don't have black vice presidents and they don't advertise in in um, black magazines like Ebony and Jet or broadcast on, on BET. You know, so, Michael, you know, you need to join us and in, in, in push for change. Michael doesn't want any part of that either. And so in the summer of 1990, he basically stops talking about these issues. He goes abroad on this Nike tour with Sonny Vaccaro, and he puts on these basketball exhibitions for troops serving in Europe. And I think, you know, he really just hoped that this would go away. And by the time he shows up again in the public, it's um, the preseason for the Bulls in 1990. And that sort of becomes what he does. He retreats into himself. He's not comfortable in this role. Same thing with the Harvey Gantt. Um, his mom wanted him to campaign for Gantt donate to Gantt's um, election campaign in, in North Carolina, Jordan refuses. And I think, you know, it's easy to say that um, Jordan was simply protecting his brand. Some people will make that argument, but I actually think that there's more to it than that. I think that Jordan saw himself as part of a generation that didn't prioritize protests, that for him, his mindset was, my job is to make breakthroughs in other spaces, namely corporate America. And if I can break through in corporate America and set good examples and defy these stereotypes, well, then I'm contributing to racial progress in that way. And I think that was his mentality, that he's focusing on certain aspirations and, and shattering barriers in different ways. You know, being a voice, being a leader, he says, that's not who I am. In fact, in 1992, after the L.A. uprising, you know, the, the protests and, and the riots that take place there in response to the LAPD officers being exonerated for beating Rodney King, you know, Jordan is asked about this and he says, I'm not a leader. You know, I, this is not something for me to talk about. 
Magic Johnson wasn't saying anything either. You know, black stars in that time, they did not see themselves as voices for social change. That was not their role, at least not the role they embraced. Look, we could talk to you all day, but we also know how busy you are because of how popular this book is. So I'm going to ask you a two part question and we only have about a minute left so you can get to your next uh, interview. Um, The role of the Medal of Freedom in Michael Jordan's life and culminating what did that mean and and the last big question is to Mm. you having written the book and done the studies what's bigger michael jordan the person the player or the brand okay all right so i'll try to answer these concisely which i'm not good at um the medal from barack obama you can see what it means to him because it moves him to tears you know it's an incredible moment and if you hear uh how jordan is introduced It's about how he affected cultural change. And what's interesting is that Barack Obama gave the Medal of Freedom to two uh, black basketball players. I think I think Kareem was in the same year as Jordan. I had to double check, but I know Obama also gave one to Kareem. But when he describes Kareem, he talks about how Kareem was a social conscience of America, that he took these important stands. So Barack Obama chooses these two basketball legends, gives them the Medal of Freedom for very different reasons two men who represent very different eras. And of course, Kareem was one of those critics of Michael for being silent when it came to racism. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating story that I try to explore sort of the relationship between Jordan and Obama in the epilogue. And of course, remember too, Obama is come has arrived in Chicago when Jordan has arrived in Chicago. And so Chicago is really a defining place for both of them. Yeah, Obama couldn't uh, afford the tickets to go to the Bulls games. I, yeah. I, I mean, he was trying to <laughs> yeah, grow up I mean, watching him, and then he, it comes yeah, full right. circle. He's giving him the Medal of Freedom at the White House. I know. It's a it's a great story. It's a fantastic story. And, of course, Obama, of course, uh, is a basketball enthusiast, a big part of his life, and the way that he saw race through basketball, that the basketball court in Hawaii where he grew up was a place where he felt like he belonged, that his skin color wouldn't matter. I digress. To your other question. Um, I would say the brand uh, is more important than Jordan, the person today. And here's why I would say that. You look around the world, the Jumpman logo is still everywhere. You know, you go to China, you go to parts of Europe, uh, the Jumpman logo, people are still buying Air Jordans and Jumpman brand gear and apparel. But I don't think that there's this clamoring still to see Michael Jordan or to hear from Michael Jordan. And we're not going to get that. That brand is what allowed him to build enormous wealth to become the first NBA player turned owner who just sold his team as majority stake of the Charlotte Hornets for an estimated $3 billion. I think the brand more than the man made that. Um, Because the man doesn't really give us a whole lot of himself. That's the mystique that I talk about in the book. And if you watch The Last Dance, he doesn't want to let us into his private world. We don't learn about, you know, what it was like in his home when he's playing for the Bulls. We don't see Juanita. We don't see his kids. We see his dad, of course, and his mom in the early part of the story. But, you know, he doesn't let us into his private space. And Air, the motion picture Air, you know, it, 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 it reinforces that theme. 
He's not even in the movie. We just get the back of his head. That's you, know, how you, you can't tell me that's not also intentional. That's how you know the brand is big that you don't even have to show the guy. You just show the back of his head and exactly. it makes for a movie. The book, <laughs> is, the book is Jumpman, The Making and Meaning of Michael Jordan. Uh, you should get it. You absolutely will not regret it. Johnny, thanks so much for the time and best of luck with the book. Oh, great to meet you both. I really enjoyed talking to you. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Let's talk some football here. We are being joined by former Eagle, former Falcon, Reggie Truck Brown. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. I look forward to what's going to happen today, man. I'm I'm excited. I tell you that much. All right. <laughs> I, 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 All right. Let's start with the with with the big question. Why truck? Well, when I was um, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Okay, and we played. You know, Jersey we, City. Hey man, hey, in the house, man. <laughs> so we I played on street team. Um, because you know, I didn't play part one, we didn't have that kind of money, man. Family too big, okay? So I played on the street, it was Bergen Street, and we had Bergen Street Blue Bombers. We played against the Pet Shot Undertakers, the Hillside Fingerprints, they had fingerprints on the side of the helmet. They <laughs> I tell you what, and when I was doing at that time. You know, I run straight ahead. I ain't nothing about going this way, going that way. I run straight ahead. The guy said, hey, he's like a running truck. And you know what? I went to the Penn Relays, and I had a nickname truck on the back of my shirt. And it stuck since then. So I run straight ahead. That's what I did. So I know how to go forward. It's amazing okay? how those things stick. Uh, your professional career, obviously, you played some in the USFL. You played some for the Falcons. As an Eagles fan, I got to ask, you you were with that that team that had Buddy Ryan and uh, Reggie White and Randall yes. Cunningham. Yes. Talk to us about what it was like to be on the team with those guys and play here in Philadelphia a little bit. I tell you what, man, um, some of those guys are, are, are legends by, them, by themselves, just by the name alone. And Reggie White was, Reggie White was just Reggie White. He was just, he was Reggie, man. And I'm saying by my name, right, Reggie? <laughs> but Reggie's just awesome. He's an awesome dude, man. And, you know, I, I always, you know, I was a little older than he was, but I looked up to him, man, because he was just, he was just a, I can't tell you the word I want to use, but he was a statue, okay? And um, I played against him in the USFL when I played um, LA Express. I played with the LA Express. We played against him when he was in Memphis. But uh, Reggie was just a, he, he was just a dude, man. And, you know, um, Jerome Brown, um, Brandon Cunningham, you know, all those guys, man, were just my quick, you know, I'm like, these some awesome dudes, man. And I'm thinking back now about what I look at it now. I'm like, man, how great was that, man? And I played with some good, good people, man. Um, and playing in Philly right now, I'm an Eagle fan. I don't care how you look at it. I, I mean, I was a Falcon. Matter of fact, I was a Duck when I was in college. I was a Duck. I got drafted by the Falcons. I retired from the Eagles. That's pretty foul, right? There you go. <laughs> My man brings jokes. He's prepared. Do you have, do you have feathers? <laughs> Yeah, man. So you know, those are good times, man. I look for I look forward to bringing up those things sometimes. It's all right, all right. Let's, let but let's talk about that time in Philadelphia for a mm -hmm. minute. The the way that the perspective 
from the outside was always Buddy Ryan only cared about the defense. And it was like, hey, Randall, just go do your thing. From, as a guy who played on that other side of the ball, mm-hmm. is there any truth to that? Or or was there a plan and a scheme and, and, and a whole system on the offense and it wasn't, hey, Randall, just go be Randall? No, um, I'm going to tell you like this. If Buddy likes you, offensive defense, use on the team. Okay. He used a guy that if he likes you, use good. But if you know, I'm going to tell you one guy he wasn't too crazy about. <laughs> I say this all the time Chris Carter. <laughs> he didn't like Chris Carter, man. He called him like Chrissy, Chrissy Poo, all that kind of stuff, man. But, you know, offense or defense, man, if you was on his team and you did what he asked you to do, he go he go to bat for you all the time. He yeah. go to bat for you, man. And that was one guy, I tell you what, um, that I would love to play for him at any time, man, because he, he was that guy. He, he was a he was a coach, man, that you can go to about anything. You know, he was, he was stern, but he was he was there watch he was there for you, man. I tell you that, and um, I miss that guy. You know, yeah. We hear players talk now about the fans and playing in stadiums. You, you played in a stadium that was notorious, the vet. Um, I mean, I, I remember the the patches for the bases and that turf. Talk to us about playing at the vet and before these fans. So I tell you what. See, I told you I grew up in Newark, right? So we played in the sandlots. And the sandlot, they had the swings, the swing set in the sand in the sandlot. And we had to run around that or maybe hit it every once in a while. And we had bottles in there and cans, all kind of stuff. But Planning in the vet was probably it planning the way I was playing at was probably safer than the vet. Okay, <laughs> because I'm gonna tell you, man, you on the vet, you were running there, man, and it was like falling on concrete. Oh. I mean, the turf wasn't; it, it was just it was like somebody spray painted it, man. I mean, it was it was coming up all over the place, man. And that itself, it was horrible, man. Um, I'm so glad they they moved from that spot, man, and, and got a different spot. I mean, it's, I feel grateful to the players, the players now, because we had it bad. We had it bad. Talk about how important the players' union was during your era. Well, see, I think it has gotten better over the years. Um, Because, you know, we had – I I played doing three strikes, 1982, 1985, and 1987. The NFL, the first one was 1982. I was with the Falcons. And the second one was in the USFL, 85, and – they, the league folded. So, you know, I'm about to sign a new contract, big contract, and this happens. So then I go to the Eagles, the third straight. So, you know what? After that, I decided to leave, man, because it, it, it wasn't fun anymore. And therefore, having a union, you know, at that time, I really didn't know much about that part then until after the fact. The union played a big part in what's going on now. And there's a lot more, should I say, help for guys um, around the league because of that. Um, and that, that's 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 the most I can give you on that part because union they do a good job today. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff happens over the over the course of time, and um, if it wasn't for the union, a lot of guys wouldn't be getting some of the things they get now. Uh, as far as after they played, um, they 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 fight for us, man. And I tell you right now, it's almost like when you when you're done playing, you were done. That was it. But somebody somebody went to bat for us, man, and I'm grateful that they're there. I really yeah. am. It's, it's it's a big deal. So, so I want to go back for a second. You talked about that that the USFL folds right around the time you're about to get a big contract. Yeah. The first thought that comes into my mind is you leave the USFL where you're about to get paid mm-hmm. to come to the Eagles, and Leonard Tose 
had a reputation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, when I was leaving 85 in Arizona, I wasn't coming to the Eagles yet. I was going to Tampa um, because I had a coach that coached me in Oregon and also at Pasadena, my junior college, and he became a scout for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And also my first coach who coached me in Atlanta, Lemon Bennett, was a was a coach down there. So I'm going to go down there. I think it's going to be a good deal, right? Well, I injured my foot, the forefoot, the, the Achilles. I told all that up, okay? And um, it was black and blue. And they released me while I was injured. And that I'll never forget, man. Um, and, and and the coach who coached me then, who was my coach, my guy, he said, man, how come you didn't call me? Why didn't you say nothing to me, man? You could have talked to me. Then let me go. You want to tell me how come I didn't call you? <laughs> but that part, man, um, it was it was ugly, man, because I wasn't expecting that to happen. So I ended up suing the Buccaneers. And um, after that, it's almost like I was being blackballed because, you know, once you do that, it's like, yeah, stay away from that. But at the same time, I got an opportunity to go to the Eagles. And um, and I was actually torn between the Eagles and the Washington Redskins that year because my best friend was getting married that weekend. We played against the, uh, I guess it's the Green Bay, I think Green Bay, back in 80, 87. And he was getting married. So I wanted to be in the wedding. But, but let me go to the wedding. He let me go to the wedding, do what I had to do, come back. But yeah, the, the next day of practice, he made sure that I wasn't too old, too old, old boy. But uh, <laughs> but I tell you what, man, and what's so bad about the the, the Redskins went to the Super Bowl that year. And the Eagles, we didn't win. We didn't win anything that year, okay? But my my partner got divorced the next year, so you know I was hot, right? So oh man, that wasn't fun. So he got divorced, <laughs> and, what, and man, he lost. These happen for a reason, so um, it wasn't meant for me to have it. So you lost out on a ring, and he got I divorced did. a year later. Right. Well, we're glad you you had the time here with the players. You did. I, I, want, so I wanted to ask you it about is, it. Has brought me some some life right now in what I do today. Um, you know, I go around the country speaking, talking to kids, talking to anybody that want to listen. Um, and like I said, I never met a mic I didn't like. But at the same time, you know, having having a a foothold with the Eagles, and you know, when they're winning, I win. Because you know, people want an Eagle player. Guess what? I'm here. Here I am. Let's go. <laughs> and, uh, I tell you what, man. I'm. I just had my knee replaced, and I had about five speaking engagements within the last couple of weeks, but I couldn't do it because. The surgery, so they didn't want me to fly, but I'm leaving next week. I'm going to Boston to go do a speaking engagement in Boston. So it's happening, man. They want Eagle guys. Let's I go. I want to ask you about that. So you're somebody who has used your platform and and given back. We'll talk about your community service efforts in, in a minute. But through the NFL Alumni Association, you, you guys are launching the tackling obesity F, uh, challenge. And talk to us about what it means for you to be able to work with the NFL Alumni Association and make a difference in the lives of other people like this? You know what? I'm going to tell you this. You know, all the years I played, I never had a problem losing weight or get cutting down weight because that's what we did. You know, you go out there, eat everything, and all of a sudden, let me slow it down because I get excited. Let me break down. <laughs> so you go out there, eat everything, and you go to work out and burn that weight off. But, you know, as you get older, <laughs> that stove ain't that hot no more. So it don't come off so fast, Okay. And, you know, you slow down a little bit. But at the same time, the reason why I'm excited about that, because after lose, before I started doing the tackling obesity and the NFL wellness program, I couldn't lose weight. I'd be in the gym every day. But, you know, I know how to go to the gym and lift weights and get strong and, you know, do all that stuff. But I didn't know how to go to the gym and work out in a way where you can cut weight and lose it 
and and get get cut. I didn't know how to do that. I just want to get big, okay? But when I joined the NFL wellness program and tackling obesity, I learned how to do things that I didn't know before. So here's what happened. I, I'm, I'm going to put it like this. I told a story once, and I said, everybody need a coach. Joe Nimbs needed a coach. Walter Payton needed a coach. Listen, the guy with all the air, Air Jordan, he needed a coach. So everybody needed a coach. So when you have a coach, you can learn more. And I learned some things that I didn't know before because never, no one ever showed me how to do that. But once I started listening to what was being said, now I can do this. So now, guess what? Now, because I've learned how to do it, I want to help somebody else. But, you know, if it's one thing to know something, but it's nothing to give it away, to help somebody else. Because sometimes you get things, I'm going to keep to myself. Nobody can have what I got. Man, I want to get this away because it's something that we all need to know. Okay? And today, the, the, man, the country we live in, Probably the biggest country in the world, as far as weight wise on people, you know, because all the stuff is in the food. You got to read what you're looking at now and when you're eating. You got to read it. You got to look at it, make sure it says what it says. You know, I was watching something the other night, man, and you talk about being, being in the place to help somebody. Matter of fact, if you look at the dictionary under what help, that's what you're going to see. <laughs> I picked in my face. All I want to do is help, man, because again, this is what I do. I mean, I'm still here. I've been through so many things in my life, man, that. I, I can't shake a stick of hat the stuff, I can tell you. But at the same time, right now, that all I want to do is help somebody. So every other Tuesday, I have a call just for people that want to dive into tackling obesity. Every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, every other Tuesday, I have a call. And I have people all around the country get on the call, just listen. Okay? One week we talk about the water consumption. One week we talk about portion control. It's always something you need to know. And just because... You're big, you lost some weight, you're small, you gained some weight. We all can learn something new. Because if you know everything, you can't learn nothing new. You know, it, it it is amazing that the NFL Alumni Association and you tackle these issues. That that the Alumni Association, guys that are done with their, their football careers, are still giving back to society and still giving back when you don't need to give more, but you not only do this and are working on this initiative, but you're a former educator, author, advocate for uh, advocate for fatherhood issues. Yes. How important is it to be able to use this platform, have, having been an athlete, to now give back more? You know, that is a, a, a serious piece right there, man, because so many people think that, you know, um, you're a football player. That's all you did. All you did was play football. I'm more than football. I, I'm more than football, man. I'm I, Football is not who I am. It's something that I did. It's not who I am. But because of that, you know, you can go into a school, or any any place you want to go to, and because you're a pro football player, everybody want to, who is he? Who are you talking to? Where's he coming from? Where, who is he? These happy kids that never seen me play. Don't know nothing about me. They, their parents weren't even born when I was playing. But at the same time, because you're a football player, you have a place you can go and talk to someone and they'll listen. And you know what? That's a, that, 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 that by itself is, is something that I've been given to do. I, I supposed to do what I'm doing because I didn't play football just to play football. I played football to do the things I'm doing right now. Here, hit me now. I played football to do just what I'm doing now, helping somebody, you know, because somebody helped me one time. And I, I like I said, I done been through it all. You can't, I ain't enough time to tell you the story. Okay. <laughs> But at the same time, I'm grateful that I have an opportunity to go places and share my story and, and share some enlighten other people about what can happen when you do this, what can happen when you do that. Some of the things you're thinking about doing, I've done it already. But you ain't got to listen to me, but watch me. I ain't got to tell you anything, but just watch me. I'll show you the fact, okay? 
but it's it's an awesome responsibility to be able to do this, man. And and I, I learned from other guys as well, man. Um, you know, one of my one of one of the stars that I talk to and I think about all the time is Billy White Shoes Johnson. You know, Billy White Shoes Johnson, man, with the you know the Houston Oilers back in the day do the crazy leg dance. Well, Billy came, Billy and I were friends with the Falcons. He played with the Falcons as well my first year. And um the two the two years I was there, he played with the Falcons. And we lived in the same complex. We became friends. And I got married about two months ago. And Billy came to the wedding, man. I'm going to tell you, that was exciting. That was, that was because I made sure everybody knew, this Billy White Shoes Johnson over here, man. <laughs> you know, and those guys that you played with before you, and they got things to share about their lives and their stories, I just picked up what they did. I just picked up where they left off, okay? And uh, I'm like I'm like a bounty paper towel. I'm soaking it all up. And when you when I'm being squeezed, that's when you get all the information. Look at you still working for endorsements. <laughs> <laughs> Smart man right now, right there. You, know, you, you said that Amen. no matter who you are, everybody needs a coach. Yes, sir. Yes, what, sir. What's it mean to you when somebody realizes that you're there for them, that you're not just the football player, that you're a man in front of them, trying to help them with their life. What, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, when I, I, I'm going I'm to I'm 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 go back to a, a little piece in my life, okay? And it has nothing to do with the football or the obesity. It's just my life, okay? Um, I've been through multiple programs when it comes to drugs and alcohol. Um, right now, um, I was, matter of fact, the last the last year or so, I've been working at a, at a hospital. It's a drug and alcohol mental facility, okay? And I'm going to tell you something. That place... Is no joke. And I'm not doing it for the money. I promise you that. I'm not doing it for the money. But the fact that I go there every day, I'm, I'm excited about going to my job because I got something to do. I got somebody to help today because they come in there jacked up, messed up. And you know what? I don't treat them like garbage. I treat them like I am. I treat them like I want to be treated because that was me at one time. I understand it. So somebody said, how come you always like that? Because you have no idea. The best, the best person to tell you about something is someone who's been through it. Don't tell me how to get downtown if you ain't never been downtown. What's the best way to go? Oh, go this way and that way. No, that ain't the best way. That's the best way for you. But listen, I've been through more stuff than they can imagine. And I shared my story with them. And they're like, oh, man, I didn't know that, man. I know most people don't because they're not going to tell you where they've been. They're not going to tell you what they had to go through to get where they are. So somebody said, man, Reg, you, you've been through a lot. I've been through a lot, but it's for a reason and a purpose. See, I'm going to tell you this. When my destiny and my purpose came together, it exploded. I'm excited about that, man, because destiny and purpose, they like this. It's a stronger, it's a stronger unit, man. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm in my I'm I'm like Michael Jackson when it comes to being on stage. <laughs> <laughs> you got the moves. I know better my game like, man. I love it. I love it. Okay. But I'm gonna tell you, man, when you help people, it, it's like if you on the East Coast when it snowed. And you know, when it snows outside, there's a whole lot of snow, everybody come together to help help everybody dig out of snow, but and they, they more, it's more love around when you got to help somebody else. I don't know. It's like a warm, fuzzy feeling almost, right? I do just because it feels good. I like what I do because I do it, okay? My mother was a healthcare uh, professional, okay? And it just fell on me because that's what I do. At the same time, there's a plan. And the plan is not your plan. The plan is for somebody else. The things I went through were not for me. There's for me to help somebody else with that. Well, I got that. I understand that, okay? I'm grateful. I play not because I wanted to play 15, 20 years. I played because I said I wanted to play. When I was a kid, I wanted to play football. I wanted to play pros. And you know what? I did. But in high school, I hurt my back. They said I couldn't play no more sports for the rest of my life. But that's what they said. They forgot to ask me. I was told that I was going to do just what I wanted to do. If you want to do it, you can do it. Anything. Nothing impossible. Well, you, you, you as an, an Eagles alumni 
and an Eagles fan, you see, you now see a quarterback who's told he couldn't do it plenty <laughs> of times, and he's and he's doing quite fine. Amen. What, what what are your thoughts on this Eagles team, this Eagles quarterback, and can they win the Super Bowl this year? Man, listen, I was there last year. I was there. I'm back this year. Already, I'm already there. Okay, because we're going. Okay. <laughs> Listen, every week, and we've all seen that, any given Sunday, Monday or Thursday, anybody can be beaten. Anybody. Especially so much, Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Jeff, that's what happened, right? Jeff hates, you know, Jeff hates anybody Thursday can be beaten, football. man, but I tell you this. There are things that the Eagles are doing that nobody else can do. I ain't talking about Patrick Mahomes. He's, 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 I, I like Patrick Mahomes, but I like Jalen Hurts. I like the Eagles, Okay. Somebody said, who's your favorite team? The team that pays me. <laughs> That's my favorite team, man. No, no, no. Team that pays me. Actually, since I retired from the Eagles, you know, it's part of what they is still coming in, you know, doing that pension thing. So, you know, if someone says Eagles stuff, I'm right there. Well, look, we, we hope that you're there at the Super Bowl this year. And uh, if that happens, we'll definitely reach back out to you again to talk about it during the run up to that. Reggie yes, Brown, uh, more important than than what you did on the field. Uh, thank you for what you're doing off the field, because the impact you're making on people is more than any yards you'll ever accumulate. And thanks yes, for giving us some time to talk about it. Well, we wish you the best of luck continuing to do it. Yes, sir. Man, I appreciate y'all, man. <laughs> What a blast talking to Reggie. I only hope that the Eagles go to the Super Bowl so that he's back here to celebrate it all and we get to have him talk again, Jeff. Much better to have a personality and a guy as, as good as him be on your parade if it if it somehow happens than Kevin Hart. <laughs> you know, we've, we've heard stories about the vet turf. His answer that this, the lots that he played on in Newark were better than the turf at the vet. I am still laughing at. I cannot get over that description. He, 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 he is very quotable. <laughs> yeah, he was highly entertaining. And look, I mean... It's a fun week for Philadelphia fans here. You know, for us, we talked the Sixers beat the Celtics earlier. The Union won their game against the Revolution in advance. The Eagles beat Dallas to go to 8-1 and one, heading into the they break. Did? They did, but it's the perfect huh. Eagles victory to go to 8-1 and one because they're 8-1, and one, but literally everybody can find something to complain about about the team being 8-1 and one if they want. What's your complaint? Well, I guess is it a problem now that your linebacker in the Kobe Dean is, is out at least for four weeks now? I think it will be out longer than that with the list, Frank. Uh, it's a problem for depth. I don't think he was really... Dr. Springer weighing in. Well, yeah, look, I've had plenty of injuries, but that's not the role that I'm going to play. I'm more concerned about. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on still. a second. Did you just say you've had plenty of injuries? Yeah, broken and Okay, torn I'm pre- nothing personal, but I'm pretty sure their recovery time will be quicker than ours. Oh, and look, I, at this <laughs> and point. I, and I'm including myself. At in this that. point, I cough getting out of bed and hurt my back, and it takes me three weeks to start moving again. So in no way am I comparing myself to anything close to an athlete. But I'd be See, surprised. my guess is at this point, your big ambition, if you've coughed and hurt your back, is looking forward to the day that you can tie your shoes again. We really <laughs> had four minutes to talk at the end of the show after these great interviews, and you decided to make it about me and my <laughs> lack of flexibility. No, no, I, I include myself in that. <laughs> so the Eagles are eight and one. Every day that I can sit there and 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 tie my own shoes is a good day. Is victory? Yeah, well, yes. See, life is about perspective, Jeff, and I'm glad that you have reached that perspective <laughs> in your life. I'm glad I can reach my shoes. <laughs> uh, your thoughts on the Eagles team at, as they're eight and one with about two minutes left here? It's weird because they're eight and one. And yet people don't seem convinced that they should be eight and one. 
And I, and I can't tell if that's a national perspective at this point, or if this is just a typical Philadelphia perspective that the sky is always falling and it seems to fall more rapidly if things are going well. I think the national perspective actually is better than the local perspective. I think the local perspective is what kind of picks apart the the eight and one with some of the concerns about the fumbles that they've had and some of the concerns with the secondary and it, it's sort of like last year when I would, you know, complain about the special teams and you would say, but they're this record. It's like when you see these flaws, mm-hmm. those are the things that come back to haunt you in, in big games. And that's what concerns me. And they've got. Yeah, some but, injury the, but the question is, is whether other teams have as few flaws. No. Like who who right now in the NFC is playing better than the Eagles? Nobody. Right. Even the 49ers have struggled. I mean, the Lions are who are better than anybody thought are probably playing the second best football. Yeah. And what happened to them? Well, I know, but I'm saying, I mean, the Niners have struggled and and have had some injuries. Dallas played well and had their chances to win against the Eagles. It just didn't happen. And it gave me a lot of anxiety. They They, are. They did what a Cowboys team does. Look, I will I will always enjoy uh, a Dallas loss. I have no problem with that. And I, look, yeah, I, un- unfortunately, that ain't happening this week. Well, I, it's fine. The Eagles won. They're on their bye week, and they're they're two games up in the East now. No matter what happens right now. So no, they, my point was unfortunately that the Cowboys will not be losing this week. No, they won't. Any final thoughts? That's your last word. <laughs> That's my final thought: is the Giants will be one step closer to a top three pick after this weekend. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.